Psalm 53. We were talking about uh, providential care, and I shared with uh, a few people tonight, but you know the men pray at 7 o'clock down at Crest Haven uh, every Tuesday morning, and the ladies pray here at the church a little bit later. But um, we found out just tonight that we were right in the midst of that terrible mugging that that doctor got in which he had you read, or heard, read about or heard on television that um, he was mugged with a shotgun and uh, he's in the med with very serious injuries. But it was right there next to Crest, Crest Haven and I get there at 6.15 and uh, Jay Parker gets there at 6.35 and Lyle Tudor gets there at 6.30. Obviously those who were there saw us and they were looking for somebody, uh, somebody that they could handle physically uh, that they would rob. If you follow the story, you know that they have robbed seven or eight places. I guess they're still looking for them, aren't they? So God did. Uh, we pray for that doctor. Pardon? They've been arrested. All right. Good. Good. But uh, that was, we felt like we were under some protective care there um, on uh, Tuesday morning. Okay. I want to read to you uh, Psalm 53, and then we'll uh, get into our study this evening. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's the state we all come into this world. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge? And look at how they explain this next line. uh, Speaking about the workers of iniquity, the fool. They eat up my people as they eat bread. You ever known anyone like that? Well, I have. People who, individuals who will eat up people the way they eat bread. And they do not call upon God. David would call them a fool. Verse 5. There they are in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame, because God has despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. I'm entitling tonight's psalm, the repeated psalm. You say, where is it repeated from? It's repeated from Psalm 14. Both of them authored by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But David earlier writes Psalm 14. And then, later in his life, this one, Psalm 53. The repeated psalm. And I would say that anything God says once demands our attention. Because it's His Word. And we need to focus in. Even if it's said once. But when God says something twice, maybe we ought to give intent attention to what He says. And if you look at this psalm, you'll see that it refers to a passage in Romans that we're going to look at in in a moment tonight too. And we're going to see that Actually, it comes out maybe three times. So it deserves our keenest concentration and contemplation 
and perhaps even our memorization if you're into memorizing. So maybe you ask the question, why would God repeat? Well, very simply because He thinks we've got much to learn from it, from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. He's saying, I think, that we've not learned it all. We didn't learn it all the first time around. And there are new lessons, more lessons for our growth and for our blessing. I don't know about, about you if, you if you are a teacher, but uh, as a, somebody who teaches the Word from time to time, I'm amazed because I keep the outlines of what I teach and I'll come to a book or a, a particular Scripture passage a couple, two or three years later after I've taught it earlier and I don't look at the passage. I just go ahead and, and prepare it a second time and compare them and they're not alike. They're not alike. And yet they're the same passage. Now you know I ain't that smart. It's not my intelligence. It's just the Spirit of God working through a simple Simon and giving him something else uh, to give out. And I think that's the way the Word of God is. We cannot exhaust the Scripture. You know, that's why those that read through it, you know, from cover to cover, from Old Testament to New Testament, you never get it all. And we never will. Now, I don't know what you think of, of Spurgeon's, but Spurgeon's thoughts on this psalm is that, that it's, we profit as we get older. As we, as we grow older, we profit as David did in writing it. And Spurgeon said that all repetitions are not vain repetitions. Sometimes they're good to repeat things, to go over things again and again and again. Having in the past been a coach, I know that when you learn a skill... If you want to do it without thinking about it, you have to learn it, overlearn it. You have to go over it enough times so you no longer think about it. It just becomes a part of you. And that's the way it is with Scripture. Oh, to make the Scripture part of me. Oh, to make the Scripture part of you. And sometimes that requires repetition. Spurgeon's thoughts on, on David are this, that assuming that Psalm 14 is written first, and I think we can, and 53 later, David after a long life, looked back and found that men were no better off when he was older than they were when he was younger. They're still fools. You know, I thought about the first testimony I ever gave. I was saved at 19 up in Kansas. And up there, one of the things for high schoolers and, and just going into college with Youth for Christ. Do they have that down in Memphis? Youth for Christ, did they ever have Okay, well, I was a product of Youth for Christ. And so after being saved in and, and just a matter of a week or two, they got me up in front of all these people at Youth for Christ in Kansas City to give my testimony. And I, I, you know what I said? I said, we'll never have a better man. We'll never have a better world until we have a better man. And we'll never, never have better men until they've been one to Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's true today. And that's exactly what David is saying as he goes from 14 to 50, 53. We still have fools, those who reject God, those who have, don't want anything to do with God. Now, there are some slight differences. And if, you've, if you can, uh, well, you can look at it later. If you're fast, you want to look at 14. Let me tell you a couple quick differences. First of all, in 14, it talks about abominable works. In ours, in 53, the one we're looking at tonight, in verse 1, it talks about abominable iniquity. Slight difference. In verse 3, uh, 14, it says, All have turned aside. 
In in 53, verse 3, it says, Everyone has turned aside. In 14, verse 4, it says, All the workers of iniquity. 53, it says, The workers of iniquity. Uh, God's name is used seven times, but there's a little bit of difference. In 14, you have the name Elohim three times. You have Jehovah four times. But in 53... It's Elohim all seven times. Now, here's the main difference, and it's in verses 4 and 5. In 14, in speaking of the fools, he's speaking about the fools uh, in Israel, the Jewish fools. But in verse 4 and 5 of 53, the reference there is the evildoers who have attacked Israel, the Gentiles different group of people. And you remember last week, I think he's referring to that, that story that, that I shared with you about Hezekiah and Isaiah and Sennacherib. That time that Sennacherib came in, was all around Jerusalem, and everything looked like a terrible situation for Hezekiah. He brought in Isaiah. Isaiah said, you're going to prosper, you're going to make it through. He prayed, he prayed, he prayed, and of course, they wiped him out, uh, the Assyrians. In Sennacherib. That is probably what's being referred to in 53. But all those are the Psalms. And that was then. What does he have for us now? What does he want to speak to us about now? Hold your place in 53. And I said there was a three-peat here. The three-peat would be in Romans. And Paul would enter in. So turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we'll pick up at verse 9 and read a few verses. Uh, Not the same text as 14 or 53, but some of the same verses. Some of the the main themes here. Romans 3, 9. What then, Paul asks, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Sound familiar? They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In their ways, And the, the way of peace they have not known. And this is, to me, one of the scariest verses in Scripture. It always has been. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That certainly is a fool who would have no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul has an analysis too of why God is rejected by the human race, which the psalmist calls a fool. So what I want to do in the time that I have left is looking at Psalm 53, share with you something about the sins of man, the sins of a fool tonight. And I'll have to admit, I can be one of the most foolish. But what does Psalm 53 teach us about sin? It's nature its fruit, and its consequences. I'm going to share some with you 
and then close out. Point number one, I'm going to call the fact of sin. Point number one, the very fact of sin. It's in here. Look at verse 2 of 53. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men. God looks down from heaven and sees us and sees our sin. Do you see your sin? Do I see my sin? Uh, Sometimes we keep one eye closed, don't we? I'll never forget in my education classes at Kansas State, they said you're going to have to do that when you teach. David's a teacher. And they said because some of your students will be so difficult, if you're correcting everything, you just won't have time to teach. So sometimes you have to keep one eye closed. Well, we do that with our sin too, don't we? We keep one eye closed. And we get all kinds of excuses. Me, you, and others that you know. I didn't mean to do it. You don't understand what really happened. It wasn't really like that. It wasn't my fault. You should see what the other person did to me first. I do some counseling here as a part of my job, and part of it, sometimes it's marriage counseling. And sometimes it's relation problems. I can't say all the time, but almost all the time, when you're talking about an event of conflict, and you have one party explain that event, and the other party explain that event, you will listen and hear, both of them believe that they're right. Both of them will explain it in such a way that you'll say, hey, I I see their point. I see their point. And you know that both of them are not right. Well, that happens sometimes. And it happens even in grandchildren's lives. Jean was telling me about her granddaughter, five-year-old, and uh, we're... We're all pretty good at justifying our sins, what I'm trying to say. And rationalizing our sin is somebody else's fault. You've got to hear my side of the story. The story she told me tonight, her granddaughter, who's kind of spunky, was being kind of mean, and Jean was talking to her, and her grand, and Jean said, don't you know the Bible says we must love everybody, we must be kind to everyone? And she said, well, I've already read that part. <laughs> I've already read that part in the book. I'm already handling that. So at a very early age, they get, they get the picture. Uh, we were babysitting our two, two of our grandchildren last weekend. And Joseph, he's the three-year-old. Um, uh, Laverna, you weren't there. You, were, you hadn't gotten home yet, and Peter and I were there with him. But I went and was in the bedroom getting something, and, and I heard him go out and get into where the candy and the cookies are and the licorice. He knows where all that stuff is in the cupboard. So I came out around the corner, and there he was. There Joseph was. Boy, he was right in the middle of it. I had him nabbed. I had him caught cold. Now listen to this. This is exactly what he said. Um, Joseph, I said, what are you doing? And I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't two seconds that he came back with, Papa, I was looking for something for you to eat. <laughs> that quick. I was looking for something for you to eat. I said, I didn't know I was hungry. He was going to take care of me. But our, our kids and our grandkids learn it fast. And, and Adam and Eve learned it fast. You know what Adam said? He blamed Eve. The woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit. That's why I'm in trouble. And then Eve says, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. I didn't want to do it. Well, 
The problem is our denial of the facts of sin. Number one, our denial of it. We like to deny it. But you know what? We're not the court of last appeal. We are not. We're not even judges. We are the accused. And the one who knows the facts of the case prepares the indictment, handles the prosecution, and renders the ultimate judge, judgment, and that is God himself. But oh, we like to present our side. You see, as we read in this verse, the omniscient God sees perfectly and knows all things anyhow. Everything is before him. Our hearts are open before him. Our desires are known. And look at the verse again, verse 2. As we look at this first number one, the fact of sin. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men. He sees it all. Nothing is hidden from him. He sees it all. Point number two. The fault of sin. The fault of sin. Uh, Oftentimes to live with sin and not feel too guilty, we minimize it. We minimize our sin. We say that's not too bad. I know a lot of people who are worse. One to ten. Uh, nothing like these other guys or other gals I know. And we then say that it's not sin, it's a weakness. Or it's an imp- imperfection. It's not a serious transgression. But what we do harms, harms other people. Jimmy has been bringing that to us from Job about his counselors. How they harmed Job. How they wounded Job. And our sin harms people. It's not just a little thing. It's not just, it's not too bad. And it happens in relationships too. Let's see. I'm going to attempt to, to, to give you an illustration. In relationships and in dealing with sin and minimizing our sin, what happens sometimes, this happens both with our sin and relationships, when we harm people, when we hurt people with words, what the person who's the perpetrator of the sin or the harmful words to another person and in their ability to minimize sin say, that wasn't no big deal. Just a little pebble. Just a little sin. I didn't drop anything on you. But the receiver of the words, the receiver of the sins, This is how they see it. Big time. It's a boulder. It's a brick. It can hurt very deeply. And sin can hurt. And wounds can hurt. Well, in verse 1, it says that a fool, a sinner, is corrupt and their ways vile. You see that? They are corrupt. In verse 3, he describes them as having turned aside from the correct path. That's in verse 3. The fool. The sinner. Verse 4, he says the evildoer devours people. In verse 4. And when God says we've turned from Him, the verb here is very strong. It means that we are now pursuing a completely anti-God path. And we're in a lot of trouble. I like some lessons I've learned from basketball. Let me share one with you here because I think we, we should be saying my bad a lot more. Let me tell you what I'm talking about here. In basketball, if you ever watched North Carolina play when Dean Smith was a coach, does that name 
Any of you hear that name? There was something characteristic of his team. And I never saw any other teams that did this. But whenever they would make a pass, like I pass it over to Jim Newsom, and Jim's able to get a layup because of my pass. He scores. We run it down the court, and Jim Newsom would turn to me and point to me. And that wasn't bad, what, he was, what he's doing. What he's doing is acknowledging the fact that I just made a pass to him that allowed him to score. I assisted him. I did something good for him that if I hadn't have done it, he wouldn't have been able, he wouldn't have been able to do it. Oh, how, we, how I wish that we could look at God and say, it's because of you, God. You're the assister. You're the one who has given me everything that I have in life. Thank you for assisting me. Thank you for helping me through life. I acknowledge you. It's you. I like that. I wish we could do that more. Now, on the other end, in dealing with the fall of sin, there's another thing that happens, and it usually happens on the playgrounds, the basketball. And that is the guy's dribbling down the court, and Bruce takes off for the basket, and I throw it way over his head, and he tries to catch it, and it goes out of bounds. Well, some kids would say, why didn't you catch it, Bruce? It wasn't Bruce's fault. Who made the bad pass? Me. And so what the, what the correct etiquette is, playground etiquette, is I run back, I say, me, my bad, Bruce. I'm sorry. I'm the one that blew it. I'm the one that made a mistake. I take responsibility for my actions. You see the point? David says that we're fools because we're always looking to play the, the blame game. Look for somebody else that we can make responsibility, put the blame upon, instead of saying, my fault. I tell you, in the counseling situations, if people didn't play the, the blame game, we'd have a lot less problems in marriage. But everybody wants to blame somebody else instead of taking responsibility for themselves. Point number three, the fountain of sin. And here, David explains why men are so bad. It's in 53.1. The fool has said there is no God. He says men are bad because they say there's no God. 53.1. Paul says in Romans, and I read it to you, Romans 3, the reason people are bad is because there's no fear of God before their eyes. They do not fear God. They are not afraid of God. And so I think we need to look just quickly at atheism because, you know, they have a problem with God. James Boyce, who's now deceased, says there are two types of atheists. The theoretical atheist and the practical atheist. Now, we have one of those here. And it may surprise you what I think we have here. But let me say first that the theoretical atheist is one who denies the existence of a supreme being. Madeline, Murray, O'Hare, and company, and followers. And someone, I saw something on the internet this week, she still speaks even from the grave. There are rising numbers going into that uh, atheism. That's the theoretical atheist. A practical atheist, and I think that's what we have here, is one who concedes there is a God, but maintains God has nothing to do with the world as it is now. And God has no practical bearing on how we're to live or how we're to act or how we do things. Now, it's interesting. Look at this 
Second, second line of the first verse. In the Hebrew text, and probably your, maybe your Bible doesn't have it. In the Hebrew te- text, there is, is not there. There is, is gone. And you simply have no God. There is, is missing. And what I think David is saying is, the fool says, no God for me. There may be a God for you, but there's no God for me. And that, I think, is what Boyce would call the practical atheist. And we got a bunch of them. They're your neighbors. They're my neighbors. They're planted all around. People who say, no God for me. No God for me. And I believe that that kind of statement can cause a lot of problems. No God for me. I don't take Him. He's not a part of my life. I don't want Him. No God for me. I don't need Him. You see, God has placed man, women, in a mediating position in the universe. Above man, obviously, there's God. Man's here. God's here. And the animals and the beasts are below us. Now, follow what I'm going to try to say here. We look up. We see our sin. We see a Savior. We repent. We become regenerated. And as we look up, we become like the one above. We become conformed more and more to the image of Christ. We become more and more like Him. That is the process of sanctification taking place in our lives as we become more like Jesus Christ. But, if we say, no God for me, then we don't look up. But we begin to look down. And if we look down, we then become like the animals and probably even worse. And our sins multiply and we invent more and more new ways to sin. You see the picture? All right, you want to see it in Romans? Hold your place. Turn back to Romans, first chapter. Yeah, we can become like the animals. <laughs> you say, that's not true. Go to, the, go to the restaurant next time. Look around and see what people do after they get their food. That look like a dog? Is that the way? Do you see the dog asking blessings? Well, you look at people. We become just like the animals. We can. Don't even honor God to say thank you for the provision of food for my life. Thank you, God. We just begin. All right. Look at 128. And we get a real good listing of what can take place. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God, talking about a fool again in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. What is it? We don't even know what the potential is for what they will do that's not fitting. Verse 29, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-minded, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do them, but approve of those who practice them. We multiply sin. And we invent new ways of sinning. You just read some of them. 
That's the fool. That's the one who refuses to look at God, but looks down and becomes like them. That's the one who says, no God for me. No God for me. If He helps you, fine. I don't need Him. No God for me. I don't know if you've noticed this, but what I think happens in a culture, in a community, when something very sinful starts happening is the scale starts sliding downward and then people say, enough, enough, enough. We're going to stop this, whatever it is. And you know what usually happens? It even goes farther. That's what Romans 1 just said. It even goes farther. Because the sinners are going to embrace it. The fool is going to embrace it. It's only the believer in Jesus Christ who's going to be able to to bring change. You say, you want examples? Look at Tunica. Look at the strip joints in Memphis. You know the history of it? In our, in our whole world, look at abortion. And you think that I, I think we should stand up against those things? Absolutely we should. You know, I've had, I've had my signs before uh, against abortion when we've had our rallies and the rights of life. And I think we should. But we've got to watch it when we start sliding and we think we're going to get to the place where we, we say enough, enough already. It's very, very difficult. You've got to be like Barney Fife. Nip it in the bud. Stop it before it gets started. And we as Christians certainly need to be doing that. Point number four. The folly of sin. The folly of sin. The folly is that God exists whether we acknowledge Him or not. That's what the fool needs to realize. Whether they acknowledge Him, whether they say, no God for me or not, it doesn't change things. He does exist. He is our God. He is the God who who loves them. And for certain, we'll stand before him someday to give an account. And if one lives with the no God for me philosophy, what are they going to say to God on that day? Can you imagine one with that philosophy, no God for me, who someday will stand before God? Is it going to be, didn't know you existed? Uh, Will that work? I don't think so. Uh, I didn't know you were important. God going to listen to that? Certainly not. That's why there's a folly in our sin. Now, I've got one more. I've actually got some more, but I only have time for one more. And the last one I'm going to share with you tonight is the filthiness of sin. So we've got to stop sugarcoating. It's not too, it's not too good. It's filthy. Now, the enemy, Satan likes to make it look pretty. Point. Check the the billboards as you drive to Memphis and around 240. Look for those with, let's say, a whiskey or a Seagram 7 picture. Have you ever seen an ugly woman or an ugly man drinking it? Have you? Uh Uh-uh. Beautiful. Perfect figure. Handsome. Masculine. All those things. Because the devil, Satan, is deceptive and tries to masquerade sin by making it look beautiful. And we know what it is. We just read it. It's vile and it's corrupt. It's not beautiful. 
It's ugly. My sin is ugly. I know it. And when I see it, sometimes it makes me sick. I was at another church and working uh, with a, a basketball team when Magic Johnson announced his admission of having AIDS. you remember that? A few years ago? I'm going to try to make a point here, too. Um, I was doing a, a devotional service that evening for this. It was a minor league type of basketball. It was before the Grizzlies. It wasn't the NBA. It was, I don't even remember which team it was. But they were good, but they were, not pro, they were not NBA players. But I remember they had all kinds of questions. And I don't know if I was correct in using this verse because it's kind of tough. But I said that the Bible says what a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. And everybody knew that, that Magic Johnson uh, was involved with a lot of women. Did you not know that? You didn't know that? Nobody knows Magic Johnson? Well, it was everybody knew it. Didn't they, Brad? I mean, that was common knowledge. And so he sowed it, he's reaping it. I mean, I, I'm, I, w- I would love to share the gospel with him. I, I, w- I would love him as a man. But what he did was wrong, wasn't it? Sure it was. So we can't make it beautiful. But you know what the sports writers did? Is almost a reaction of jubilation when they found out Magic Johnson had AIDS. Not because of anything they, they had in relationship to Magic Johnson, but they had a man who now they could look at him and say, uh, in an attractive way to look at a man with a killer disease. An attractive way. In fact, the one sports writer said, uh, he spoke of, of a smiling, the now, now we have a smiling face for AIDS. Because you know Magic Johnson smiles all the time. And he's doing pretty well with it. You know, you know that. He's a pretty strong guy. But we've got a smiling face for AIDS. And another paper said, AIDS is not a danger. And I quote, AIDS is not a danger for some groups of people, but anyone can get it. You believe that? That anyone can get AIDS? I don't. I think that's a lie. Because AIDS is not acquired by those who obey the moral law of God. Now, I yes, there are transfusions. Some people can get it by mistake through a transfusion. I guess someone could get it even by a rape. But it's not smiling. It's not a smiling issue. And ladies and gentlemen, I've been on the other end. A couple times. I've been in, in hospitals with a, a male victim dying from AIDS. And he, 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 he wasn't smiling. He was not smiling. He was in a sad, sad situation. But there's your, there's your enemy. There's Satan. He'll make it pretty. Even in a situation like Magic Johnson. The Bible says there's the way that seems right to man, but the, the way therein leads to death. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. One minute, because I want to turn from sin to the contrast of true people of God. Those that we would call the faithful saint or the faithful believer. I trust that that's you and me. Even though we're all in process. Even though we still make mistakes. Even though we we still can can, uh, fail. Because we as the believer live in a world in which fools do act and speak as if God is nothing to them. And they're all around us. All around us. Should we be witnessing to them? Sure we should. We live in a world where sin abounds. 
We do, don't we? But the saint, the believer in Jesus Christ, should look upward. Where we can see the Lord high and lifted up. We can see His glory fill the, the temple. We can, we can see verses such as, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We put our faith in Him, in Christ, in Christ alone, and in His work, rather than looking at our own works as the basis for our salvation. That will never work. Our works for salvation. And the believer, the saint, you might say, looks forward to the second coming of Christ and realizes that it could come any time. He could return at any time. Are you waiting for Him? Would you, would you look forward to the day that Christ returns? I hope you would. Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then Christ lives in you. And the song says, Oh, what salvation is that to know, acknowledge, and realize Christ lives in you. The Spirit in you. I hope God is, is paramount in your life. And you're striving to live for Him every day. Let's pray. Father, whenever we look at sin, it reminds me so much of my, my failures. And Lord, I thank You that You called me out of darkness into Your marvelous light. And Lord, may I be an ambassador and may these who are listening, may they be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. To so many out there that says, God, not for me. I don't need Him. May they be ambassadors to tell them how much they need Him and how much He'll mean in their life if they'll only come as God calls them to a faith relationship with Him. So Lord, dismiss us with Your blessing and Lord, uh, use us in Your vineyard this week. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for coming. See you next week. Randy Ray will be here next week.